0: I love magic. No, not throwing fireballs or turning people into stone. Well, okay, I like that too. But what I truly love is part of what I call a primeval fantasy world where magic exists, but in a subtle way. It's accessible, but only to very few in the world and only in small or small compared to most fantasy role-playing games way. Magic is something deeply part of the fantasy world that I love. It's something mysterious and ineffable. This is what drives my 20 years of honing my magic system. It may help for some of you to go back and listen to a previous episode that I've done on this topic, episode number 11, called Making Magic Magical. So today, I'm talking with my old friend, Drew, from college. He's helped me design this magic system uh, through the decades and through playtesting. And today, we discuss our ongoing quest to create a magic system that allows players to have magical abilities while still preserving that fantasy world setting that we want. This requires restraint and mystery. All right. So I'm here with uh, Drew, who I've known for a few hundred years and gamed together through the centuries. Drew, you want to introduce yourself and yeah. your experience in role playing through the years?
1: Yeah. i um, glad to be here. I started role playing. I think I was 11 or maybe 12. And, we, and me and my friends were playing the D&D basic set. I even bought, let's see, the expert set, the companion set. So we played those. Uh, and then when I got to uh, high school, we played advanced D&D. And then when I got to college, I started playing your system, which had a, you know, a much different feel in terms of magic uh, and magic abilities, as well as what magic users could do. I remember being shocked uh, the first time in your system that I ran into a magic user because he was, he had a sword and D and D, you know, I can only <laughs> have a dagger. And I was like, wait a minute, this is, this is amazing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's great. My own subgenre preferences have molded everything I've been doing through the years. My own goal is to get something in the ballpark of Middle-earth or Beleriand, and on a practical level, uh, what I've been increasingly striving towards is the feeling of a mythical, deeply pre-modern world trying to escape. uh, If we just look at the World of Warcraft video game, and we look at how that affected tabletop role playing games through the years and they kind of build on each other essentially the the trend has been such that magic is just a tool to be used in the same way as a sword or a bow or any other skill set and this is what gets us into the problem of magic, not feeling special, not feeling mythical, not feeling, you know, magical. Some people's solution to try and keep that feeling is to talk about magic in the game using a lot of descriptives. I think that's important. I think that that helps, but Uh, I also believe that it has to really be baked into the mechanics, that if the specific mechanics allow your magic to go in different directions, then all the descriptions in the world aren't going to save it from that. The overarching problem I I keep uh, feeling through the years is that if something is common, it can't be special. And if you walk around a fantasy world and magic is everywhere, like World of Warcraft, right? Yeah, that there are there are no uh, descriptions you can keep heaping on it to try and salvage that feeling of mystery and specialness. If every farmer and their dog can cast spells. Yeah. So that's been a driving force that I've been honing through the years. So that serves as a good backdrop for, uh, I guess, what has been driving this project. I should also throw out that magic in particular is the greatest threat to this uh, enterprise. Yeah, it is. That nothing else seems to damage the subgenre that we're seeking as much as this single issue. And part of it is the ubiquitousness of magic and the other part is how super powered they can get. All right so um, that is as kind of the groundwork. Let's talk about your joy of playing spellcasters. you have played a couple of them that were long-term spellcasters. yeah what's your particular draw in being a spellcaster and what were your experiences in my system? what, what really tantalized your imagination with that?
1: I, um, the thing I've enjoyed most about role playing with you, uh, Daniel is the, is the problem solving. There's, um, there are little bitty problems that all lead to a really big problem, right? The myth arc. But along the way, there are all these little bitty problems, uh, trying to get somebody to give you information or trying to sneak into a place to figure out something or trying to attack an overwhelming force. There are all these little problems. And it has been really fun to have them be a challenge, right? A challenge meaning it's not easy, but also a challenge meaning you can win. Uh, And to have that kind of level of difficulty and then to have a magic user who maybe has a couple tools that they're bringing to the situation that can tilt it just a little bit in our favor. That's been extremely fun for me. And I, I mean, that, the first character that we played long-term that I had um, his nickname was Toss Tumas. I can't remember where that came from, but anyway, he was a knowledge mage. And so that made it so that there were all kinds of things to find out. And he was, uh inquisitive in a bad way right so he would never leave something alone even if it was something he should leave alone he couldn't help but try to discover everything which was fun to play and also (laughs) uh added you know terrible wrinkles to the whole quest line that we were doing at different times
0: Um, yeah i i should interject on that that so this what drew's referring to is a campaign from long time ago and What Drew did, I had no inkling that he would do. And it reshaped the campaign (laughs) significantly. Like, the things that I knew that were going on in the world, because of what that character did, by essentially unlocking a door, we'll say, that he... He knew he should not unlock, but his character was so obsessed with discovering things that he unlocked a door and that reshaped all kinds of things. You huh. essentially um, released a devil, quote unquote. And uh, yeah, that that was
1: really interesting. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, that, <laughs> I remember I was sitting there thinking this is a really bad idea. But I was also curious about it. I was like, what's Daniel put behind this? What's going to happen here? If Laramid, that was the name of that terrible devil necromancer. I've always enjoyed the problem solving. And I've also been, I've also enjoyed bringing something, having something in our party that wasn't simply go in and fight. But maybe we could find other ways. And that was fun. It was wonderfully fun. And then this last campaign that we played, I, I played a mage because the luck of the dice rolls had my character with a very high intelligence. And that was the best character for those those roles, those those attribute roles. And I didn't really want to play a magic user because I, I was a little bit tired of them, and I wanted to pursue some other role and see where it led. But it, it turns out it was good that I did because then we kept on tweaking the magic system and found found that just it had to be significantly curtailed in order to keep balance in the system and to keep a feeling of wonder in the system
0: so i should also say that drew has been the main helper with my magic system for the past Probably 20 years, honestly. So, you know, whenever I started making my own system, I knew that I, Magic was, I mean, my, my primary roots were d I stopped at second edition 20 something years ago. And it's funny that with each iteration of my system with Magic, I would keep getting more and more careful about uh, magic and giving less and less. And and yet that process still goes on. So I'd like to hear your opinion on that process of shrinking it down and what motivates it in your mind. We
1: have, I bet we have shrunk it down, like massively shrunk it down, At least four times that I know of off the top of my head where we were where we simply said, this character is too powerful, and it is uh, tainting the campaign. Um, So there was this point with the Tumas character where he had something like 250 different spells. Um, because he had made, he had created spells, and that campaign had gone on for years. It took years for that campaign to resolve. And so it was reasonable to say that as they would travel from one region of the world to another and take the, the slow roll road by horse or donkey or whatever, that over that time period he'd make some spells that he thought were going to be useful. And then whenever we realized that it got out of control, we had to literally cut half of his spells, maybe more. And change the magic system just to keep him from being too powerful. And we had thought, you know, that if it takes a mage a month to make a spell, that's enough time. Uh, and that won't get out of hand. But actually, it did get out of hand. Because uh, there, were, there were times like that the party would be in a very specific problem. And if they just had four days, Tastumus could create some little spell that would have significantly helped them. Um, and, and that ruined the, the system. So one of the things that we introduced, like one of the major step backs was to reduce the number of spells that a magic user had access to. Another major step back was to reduce the kind of power pool that the magic user had, um, which we called spell points at the time. And, and, and that's still what's being used in the system. So there's a, you know a certain number of points that a magic user had, and each spell costs a certain number of points in a certain amount of time. So that was like the first cutback we had, and it was just simply to put a cap on magic user. And then uh, later in that same that same campaign, actually, we had to cut Tostumus again, and that's when we introduced will effects. And this was probably the biggest change that we made, and it's the best change we've ever made. And this and the way that that the way that worked was. But no matter how good of a mage you were, all spells took too long to cast. Except there was a handful of spells that your character knew so well that with just a will, just a quick kind of blast of your willpower, you could cast that spell. And there was a very short number, of, a very small number of them. So with Tastumus' character, because he was a knowledge mage and also a mind mage, most of his will effects were in these two areas. And it mattered because, like, I took one of my, one of the will effects I took was this um, spell that let me sense sentience around me, right? So if our party was sleeping out under the stars and didn't know it, but someone was hunting us, and all of a sudden we wake up because, a, a, you know, a stick has cracked someplace off on the distance and it shouldn't have, Tumas could, with about a half second, uh, you know, notice, he could cast this spell and immediately know... Are there other sentient things around me? I got my party. They're accounted for. Are there still more? So that was a really powerful will effect for a knowledge mage. And it, um, it saved our bacon for sure. But what we really liked was that um, he, any other knowledge spell, took an enormous amount of time to cast. So much that there was no way he could cast it in combat. And that really reduced um, his overwhelming kind of strength in combat. Even a knowledge mage um, had inordinate power by that point in combat. So that was probably the second uh, iteration of the magic system. And I think that was one of the most inspired changes that we made. Um, It made every mage unique because every mage chose different will effects. And it made it so if they chose something really powerful as their will effect, they were going to go to it over and over and over. And they became known for that thing. Right. So it added identity to the magic system and it seriously curtailed the, the variety that a mage could bring to a combat, which was a big deal or a high stress situation. You know, it didn't have to be combat. It could be like you're sneaking through a house and you knock over a candlestick. Um, now, the, the stress situation is really high stakes what are you gonna do? And well, what are my will effects? Cause I've only got a couple seconds to do something here. And, and that was really fun. And then um, more recently we created a new system uh, that still used will effects, but had different schools of magic and had them interacting with each other a little bit differently. Uh, and I think that the biggest change we've made in this um, third iteration is the different spheres um but once again uh the mage that i was playing this most recent mage he got out of hand and we had to cut his spells two times we had to cut his spells he was just too versatile and it makes it so like every time the party runs into a problem the first question is what's the mage going to do which limits everybody it's fun of a certain kind but I mean, aren't you always gonna go to the god to get the problem fixed?
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, and this is why it's all part of the sub-genre that we're seeking. So uh, in let's just say a typical role-playing world, like a DD and d world, if you have um, a spellcaster who cast a light spell, that is meaningless on any emotional level. Like nothing special just happened. But if you have a subgenre where magic is the stuff of myth, people talk about magic as this thing that they heard that happened a hundred years ago, or it's all wrapped up into these other uh, myths. Let's say. Then the first time you see someone do anything supernatural, it is, uh, ironically, it's much more like our experience would be in the modern world. So in the modern world, which is largely um, materialistic, atheistic, et cetera, if, if we saw an actual miracle, like psychologically, we wouldn't know what to do with it psychologically it would set us back, right? And that's the, the experience we want. And so shrinking magic considerably does not hamstring any anything for the players. Uh, if you have anyone in the world who can do anything magical, then the people who view that are viewing a miracle. They're viewing something that can't happen, but it just happened. And the presence of that person <clears throat> sets us back to the to the point where like, is he a god? Is he a spirit? Is he a ghost? It raises all these questions. And so as limited as the spells are in comparison to other role-playing games, the fun is enhanced because it is complementing the world it's complementing the storyline
1: yeah so like this is that a magic user can feel like important just by casting a light spell like if that's all the magic user did and around the magic user a crowd of people were like oh my gosh what we just see this is amazing you must speak to the gods for it." whatever that character can still feel really important with something so simple as that and that leads to a really interesting kind of role-playing dynamics among, mm-hmm. you know, the PCs and also the NPCs. The thing is, um, that the, the thing that we realized was that with our new system, uh, the one that we're using right now, we started creating some rules. Some rules that can't be broken uh, by a player character and really shouldn't be broken by the GM but, I mean, I, I suppose a GM can do something if they want. And so, for an example, a good rule that we created was you can't mess with time. You can't stop time. You can't freeze somebody in time. You can't go back in time. And you can't skip forward in time. And you can't know the future. And you can't know the past uh, very well unless you have the right kind of spells. Maybe you could suss something out, but not really. So, time is a boundary that can't be broken, and that's an important one because it, it uh, keeps an arms race from happening in terms of messing with you know the time and stuff like that. Another one we had was, that we created was, there's no flying, you can't change gravity. Now you could make a spell that allowed an arrow to go a little farther, um, changing how it interacts with the wind or changing how much strength this bow particularly has. Or even just propelling that arrow a little bit faster. You could make a spell like that, but you can't make something that's gonna not come down. Right? Um, no flying, no keeping something levitated over the ground. Gravity can't be changed. You can make your you can change your leg muscles so that you can jump higher and you can jump farther, but you're gonna come down. And um that can't be that can't be broken. That rule can't be broken. Yeah, uh, going way back to the
0: earliest pruning of magic, it was things like you can't mess with time. Uh, like you mentioned, you cannot fly. You can't do Star Trek teleportation. Yeah, There's no raising from the dead. Um, things like that. I mean, those are just real, so obvious necessities for the subgenre that we're seeking, Uh, The idea that, well, this character died, but it's okay. We'll just go back to the, quote, town to get a resurrection from the priest. I mean, that really just goes against everything that I'm after whenever I game. I want the feeling of being mortal, the feeling of being vulnerable, and that uh, once death
1: is there, it's it's over. There's no going back. permadeath changes the way characters interact with a problem and a scenario and a campaign. Like if they like their character, they're not going to be risky. Right.
0: So let's talk about the arms race problem um, in either in your other experiences or uh, as we game together through the years, how would you frame the arms race problem?
1: The the main issue was that first knowledge mage I had, Tumas, he started collecting so many spells and he was so versatile and And he had been in a campaign for years. He had, He was a high level character, but it made it so that for you to create a challenge, and by challenge, I mean something that is difficult to do but can be done, a, a game that is hard to win, but it can be won, right? So for you to create a challenge, for such a versatile mage, you had to make some something bigger and more powerful, or quicker, or more dangerous, or something like that. And it made it so that other characters in the party um, would be too vulnerable, or would rely too heavily on Tostumus. And there are different things a GM can do to kind of help that out, but it, the problem actually never goes away, and you end up you end up just increasingly creating more powerful spells or beings so that this mage is put in his place. And there's a, I mean, I remember Tumas had a stun spell and he he had a, I think he was a mind mage in a, like his number one area was knowledge and second number, second number two area was uh, mind magic. So he had this stun spell and I had made it a will effect so that if push came to shove, I could stun somebody in one second. And what we realized was, okay, that, that means every fight is over. Like, n- there's never a one-on-one that Tumas can't, House Tumas can't win. He'll stun them, takes one second. And now for the next three seconds, they can't think, move, do anything. They're bewildered. And he can get away. He could cut their throat, whatever he needs to do. And it, it completely changed the dynamic in, in a fight because Tumas had taken that as his will effect. And it's a damn good one. You now had to change every fight so that in order for it to be challenging and, not, and us to not just walk over everything, you had to account, you had to account for the, the stun. It's either not going to work or Tumas is going to have to get interrupted or someone has a magic spell that's protecting them or there are so many that I can't cast it quick enough to handle everything. There had to be something. Otherwise, it's just a walk in the park. And then whatever you made, Tumas tries to make a spell to counter it. So like, let's say you have a crowd. We're surrounded by six warriors, and Tumas can only stun one of them. It wasn't too long before I made a mass stun spell. It was incredibly expensive. It took almost my entire spell pool. But in just the right moment, that turned the tide. And so you, I do something, you have to account for it to keep the challenge there. I change to adjust to that new challenge and then you have to do something new again, right? So uh, that's an example of the arms race. It just made it so that each particular challenge became, even though they were building on previous information and that was interesting and fun, it also made it so that everything became more fantastical and you had this human mage running around who was bending the campaign. Yeah, that's right. You know, even though
0: we got rid of all of the huge, quote unquote, spells like fireballs and um, I mean, all the the typical D&D spells that are just essentially, you know, straight from Mount Olympus, even though we had... Gotten rid of those, we had the same kind of problem even on a lower scale. So if we just took what you described and put it into other subgenres, you're not very tough because in other systems, characters would commonly be resisting that magic, right? And so that makes sense for a balance slash challenge dynamic, but that ends up damaging the subgenre. Now, in this world, there are people who are resisting great magic and that alters the narrative of the world. And that's what we hate the most because the world is the... In my mind, the world is the most important character. The world, the ongoing world, and the, the different feelings that are evoked from that world, that's the most important. And so if the like mechanics... That if the mechanics get in the way for the sake of, well, we can't let you stun everyone because then it's too easy. Therefore the solution will be, yes, you have the spell, but people get their saving throws. So they're not affected. And I mean, if all you have to do is spend 30 seconds realizing that magic has just been demoted. Yeah. And that's, that's something that really goes against the, the primeval, uh, mythical feeling that we want another example of that would be let's just take invisibility which we also got rid of um, quite a yep. long time ago uh, so let's say that you are a mage you make yourself invisible and you want to go assassinate a king a warlord whoever so your options at that point are okay you are invisible and you're walking through the palace no one can see you if you want to keep the feeling of that world either no one has any inclination you're there or they think a ghost might be there I mean those kinds of things naturally flow but what a lot of systems do instead is to say okay you're invisible do the people detect you anyway and do they react in a way that nullifies your invisibility?" And that's the common thing is to say, okay, there's an invisible man in here. Everyone get your swords out and get ready for it. So a couple of things have happened there that go against the subgenre. One of them is there's nothing special about the invisibility. People may be afraid because you're dangerous, but that feeling of, oh my God, there's an invisible being here. The awe has been removed. The fear has been diminished. And it goes down to, well, it's like I see a split in the road. One option is damage the subgenre and make it not special, not a big deal. The other option is the caster cannot go truly invisible. Yeah. And if you choose the latter road, you preserve the world. Yes. And you preserve the feeling. So uh, one thing I've noticed through the years is that as the players are going along and the players start suspecting that there is some kind of a mystic or a mage of some form, everyone gets really careful immediately. Like everything stops and they're like, what, there may be a mage within the next 30 miles. What are we going to do? Yeah. Yeah. and that, that's what we want, I think. Uh, I mean, I don't know how many people that appeals to. Uh, I, th- I think there's a good number of people who that appeals to. And I think there's a larger number of people who have never considered the effects of just how magic really steers the subgenre that we're, we're playing in.
1: The thing that I like about the current system is the, the effort that we have made to make every mage unique so that my character, who's a mage, really has no idea how this other person does that. I've never seen that before. That is amazing, and it is really scary. Instead of my character is a mage and knows how magic works, and therefore... That means I can do X, Y, or Z. So one way that we've um, like preserved that is we've made it so that it's extremely difficult for a mage to understand a sphere that, uh, that they do not possess. Like if you put like the, the character that I'm currently working with has the nature sphere, because we wanted to see what can that thing do? What can the nature sphere do? And it's done some interesting things. Um, and that would mean that if I ran into another nature mage, I might have an inclination like, oh, that's how he's doing that, or that's what she's doing. I see. But on the other hand, if I run into, let's say, a mind mage, because this, this one that I have now is not a mind mage, then that would mean that he is bewildered by that he didn't even know this was possible. What do you mean, stun somebody? What do you mean, implant a thought? What do you mean, heighten an emotion? This is not even possible. Um, and so the, what, one thing that the GM does and one thing that you did is kind of fill in what I know about the world and then let me make up all kinds of ideas about how things work without ever confirming that's how something works. And what that did is that when we ran into another mage, me, the player, actually felt like, this is going to go sideways. I have no idea what this person's going to do. And, and in fact, I think every mage encounter we had in, that, in this current campaign, I have been surprised and flummoxed by the things that you're bringing. I remember there was this one encounter. My guy is uh, also a, 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 a mage who is beholden to a good god. And I'm fighting a mage that is beholden to an evil god. And we're, you know, our party is there, and we know that that mage is there, and we know that he's dangerous and he's crafty. But we don't know um, what his skill set is. We don't know what spheres he has. And even if he had a sphere that I also had, we don't know the spells that he has. He's every mage is unique, and that makes every mage dangerous. So we're, we think we have the jump on him. We plan this really big, elaborate or a thing to go in and surprise him get the jump on him he has to be filled with arrows before he can even speak we need this man dead and so we go in and we we execute our little trap and the next thing we know there is this yell he yells but the yell is filled with evil dread and all of us are terrified for a second and i didn't even know that spell existed like, my character had never seen that before, ever, and did not know it existed. And I remember the, me as a player, I was like, oh, that's a good one. I didn't, even, I didn't even think of that. And it was so awesome because it was filled with wonder. And completely changed our plan, made the whole thing go sideways. The mage escaped completely unharmed. Uh, we, we fumbled the entire affair and even injured some innocent people. The whole thing was way out of control. And what, it, what happened was that mage became even scarier and magic became even less controllable and way out of our, our realm. Even though my character was a mage, none of us knew to expect that. And now we knew one thing he could do. But... He has a whole arsenal, doesn't he? So, and and so my character, as a response, my character's like, I should make a holy shout, a shout that makes my team feel like the gods are behind us. We can win this. It gives us all a, a kind of a strength. And so my character started working on a holy shout spell, but it was going to take forever to make that spell. I think he abandoned it. But that that was really great because... Here's something I had never seen before. Here's something that was really impactful. Maybe I could do something like that um, and and it was just a fantastic role playing moment, and it's because the magic system isn't known
0: yeah and and that's a really important uh element that i even it's like i I kind of believed that years ago, but then. Just through the years, have been uh, more and more intent on that facet of keep all magic unknown from all the players as much as is possible, even the spellcasters. So, what's ideal is that no player ever gets to see the magic book, the the way that magic works, the many different types of spell casters and the kinds of spells and the effects um, to have that as hidden as is possible and the more you do that the more you unify the player with the character and that just generates tons of fun if we if we contrast two different experiences of someone casts a spell on you, let's say that, that uh, shout from hell that you referenced, if it just becomes a thing, okay, everyone roll your saving throw, which I, I don't have those per se. And now let's see what the effects are. That's just a drastically different experience from the GM. Uh, filtering the mechanics and then representing information back to the players—it's yeah. two very different experiences. And even as you, as a spellcaster, only knowing what you happen, what your character happens to believe about magic, and that that's the extent of it, and you don't even know what you can do, like developing different spells that's golden. Uh, I just, I love the feeling that that generates for everyone. And then when the, when the players, again, let's, let's take two different types of gaming in the one, the spell books are open to everyone and anyone can look up a spell saying, here's what this spell does. And then to look at a certain caster saying, well, I know what she can do. She's this kind of a druid and here's her spell list. I mean, that essentially ruins what I'm after. What I'm after is that persistent feeling of mystery and wonder. And I mean, the alternative, which is probably pretty common, is, okay, just have your character pretend that you don't know how this works or you don't know what this spell does or what this you know magic item does pretend you don't know because your character doesn't know uh, i see what motivates that and i see that that diminishes a huge chunk of the fun for me
1: i agree the you brought up magic items and when i when i was young and playing DD, i mean we all loved magic items get as many magic items as you can two rings you can wear two rings. You can have an amulet, you know, get some magic armor, get a magic sword. We all like magic items. And that is a d and thing. And it's part of the arms race. You have to get those magic items to be able to compete at the higher levels against some of the monsters that have been made because those magic items exist. What I liked about um, the magic system that we have now, uh, it is, well, it's impossible for a character, a player character to make a magic item. Um, now there might be some magic items that have been made a long time ago and they're wondrous and they are dangerous and they are, they're not safe. Every one of them has, has some kind of cost. And it's often a cost that you're willing to pay. Um, like maybe, maybe it'll make you react a certain way to a certain stimuli or something like that. Um, but they're dangerous and, that fills them with wonder. And it's kind of like, you know, after, after a campaign, we're not splitting the loop, but rather this thing needs to be taken to somebody who can put it away forever or something like that. And I, I really enjoy that at first, I wasn't so sure about it uh, because I was maybe used to D and D. But now it really lowers again, the arms race kind of situation. And It makes it really fun, especially if you don't know what it does, what it was made for, who made it and why did they make it? All of those things bring intention to the magic item, and that makes it dangerous.
0: Yeah. Uh, Let's pause there for people to chew on uh, this much. Drew and I will continue this conversation in part two, where we'll get more into these topics, uh, focusing on primeval fantasy, and how we work in the mechanics to reach these goals that we're aspiring to. Feel free to hit me up with comments and questions, and I hope you enjoy part two as well. Thanks.